Mississippi was one of the most powerful states in the Union when it seceded and joined the Confederacy. Over the next 16 years, devastating military campaigns, revolutionary emancipation, long-term army occupation, and groundbreaking legislation redefined the state and the nation. The Civil War and Reconstruction Governors of Mississippi is a digital history project that provides free online access to the state's governor's papers, about 20,000 documents, from just before the Civil War through the era of Reconstruction and into the New South. Funding for this program was made possible by the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. Welcome to this evening's live stream presentation here on the Tattooed Historian Facebook and YouTube channel. Thank you so much for being here. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and I am joined by three wonderful historians for tonight's broadcast on women and the war on the home front. Uh, first, Dr. Susanna Yorl is back once again. Uh, Dr. Yorl is a professor of history and co-director of the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. She is the author of numerous books, articles, editorials, blog posts, columns, and digital history projects that share cutting edge historical ideas and research with scholars, educators, and the public. Second, Dr. Stephanie Seal Walters is the USM Digital Liaison in the Humanities. Steph earned her PhD from George Mason and focused her studies on loyalism in Virginia during the American Revolution. Uh, on top of being a regular on my live streams, Steph has been a leader in the classroom when it comes to digital humanities, and she is a pug enthusiast. I'm always going to say that. I'm always going to bring I'm okay that up. With that. I'm okay with that. Always going to bring that up. Uh, our, our special guest tonight is Dr. Diane Somerville. Uh, Dr. Somerville's research interests encompass race, gender, and the American South. Her first research project, which culminated in the publication of her first book, Rape and Race in the 19th Century South traces the evolution of white Southerners' fears of black rape by examining cases of black-on-white rape throughout the 19th century. A recent project, Aberration of, the Mi of Mind, Suicide and Suffering in the Civil War Era South, is a study of suicide among Southerners during and after the Civil War that explores how gender and race shape decisions and attitudes about suicide in the wake of war's physical and emotional devastation. Her current project is a study of postpartum disorders in the American South. Her teaching areas include the 19th century United States, the American South, US women's history, Civil War and Reconstruction, history of sexuality in the United States, and African American history. So I am outnumbered this evening, and uh, I, am, I am very happy to have you all with me here for this fantastic discussion. Thank you for joining me this evening. Thanks, John. Thank you for having me. Dr. Yoro, we're back at it again. And we're talking about a very interesting topic, which I know will appeal to many people in, in, in the audience tonight and uh, on the future podcast. We're talking about women on the home front uh, during the secession crisis, during the war, and during Reconstruction. Uh, how has this all come to pass as far as shaping our the narrative of the project? Right. So, I mean, as as we get through these documents, as you know, MDAH does the wonderful job of digitizing and sending them down to us, and Mississippi Digital Library helps get all that stuff online. We're just we're uncovering some things that you might expect um, from the literature, right? I mean, I think we I mentioned last week. One of our assistant editors, Lindsay Peterson, sent Steph and me this great document where a woman's offering to organize a Nightingale Regiment of nurses, um, but they do expect the pay of soldiers. Uh, and it's just, it's fantastic, right? So some of that, some of that early kind of enthusiasm, but I think, you know, two of the things that are, that are happening as we look at the documents we're working through, and then some of the sample documents that archivists really helped me kind of find from the collection to give people a sense of what we're, we might discover as we continue on, mm. is this sense of um, frustration and anger and, and despair. And it's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have Diane join us tonight, because she, she gets into this so much in her book. 
And, you know, you're not always, you, I'm not seeing a lot of kind of the image of the noble sacrifice. What's coming up in the documents is a lot of frustration and a lot of anger and a lot of just kind of, what am I going to do? Um, that this kind of sense of just being absolutely overwhelmed. And so I'm, that's one of the things I'm, I'm going to want to explore with these documents as we get more and more transcribed. As the listeners may remember, I mean, there's, there's 20,000 documents to get through. Right. The first 2,000 are going to go live in June. So we're getting there. Um, mm -hmm. You can see the one, the sample documents that we'll be talking about tonight at the sample document site. But one of the things I want to explore is, is okay, how did we get from what we're seeing in the documents to this almost Scarlett O'Hara yeah. fighter but perseveres and it's all worth it for this meaningful cause like i'm not we're not seeing that mm. that's very interesting because we hear about that so much as as we were as i was growing up i even heard about it about you know uh women on the home front uh supporting 110 percent of the time and and uh and there were instances where manuscripts came out monographs did come out that said about the power of the women at home mm -hmm. uh, and how that could appeal to the men as, on the front as far as either staying in the fight or going mm -hmm. i didn't realize there was so much uh, uh the negative kind of, uh, kind of ways of, of feeling towards uh the war effort uh early on as, mm -hmm. as perhaps there was uh and and some of the secession crisis mm -hmm. perhaps I don't know. We, we can go through that in detail. But Diane, what what have you uh, when, when you see this where uh, women are basically trying to control the narrative, I guess you could say they're, they're trying to be like they have an opinion. Obviously, they're, they're, they have a political opinion. They live politics. But, you know, how does that echo throughout some documents that you have uncovered as well? We may find in this project. So I think there's a, an intersection of the women that I looked at and some of the women that um, are being un uncovered in Mississippi. And that, that, how, that said, um, my women are truly the most um, mentally distraught, psychologically bereft. Um, many of them end up in insane asylums and some of them even commit suicide. So, um, they are, but, but where I see them intersecting is this, this point of desperation. And that's where I see some of the, the documents coming through, uh, the, the, the letters to the, to the Mississippi governors um, asking for relief, demanding relief, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it is really important to understand the dire straits that so many of these women were in. And it makes perfect sense because um, and, and we can talk more about this notion of paternalism, but these are women who have been who have been socialized to believe that they are dependent and they're they're re they're reliant on their husbands and they're inferior. And so when the war hits and their husbands leave them, they're like, "Hey, I can't I can't do this." And where I think we've been misled has largely been the influence of the lost cause acolytes, right? Because they were all about, um, I say in my book, they wanted their cake and eat it too. They wanted to talk about how, how, how much Confederate women suffered, how much they sacrificed. Um, but they also wanted to talk about how resilient they were and how they persevered. And you see this throughout all of uh, during the war and then then after in the lost cause. I mean, I picked one quote that I think is pretty telling. Jefferson Davis, of all people, he says when he's talking about the women of the Confederacy, he talks um, about them whose fortitude sustained them under all the privations to which they were subjected. In other words, they rose above it all, right? Uh -huh. And so for a lot of years. Um, Mary Elizabeth Massey, who wrote um, Bonnet Brigades, right? There is this, there is this acknowledgement of suffering, but then they move, they blow right past that and they move into, but they were so heroic, and um, we need, you know, they were they were canonized basically. Yeah. So what I wanted to do is to 
um, go back to those women and assume that not all of them, sure, a lot of them were strong and, and capable women who rose to the challenge, but not all of them did. And um, the, peculiar, the, 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 the peculiar circumstances of war and deprivation and dislocation meant that the normal um, networks that would be available for any woman under any circumstances, a widow, for example, who needed to fall back on family, a lot of these um, social networks were uh, upended, right? Um, they, they had to fall back on neighbors and kin in, in times of strife, but they were going through some of the same things. And I think that ratcheted up the feelings of desperation. So you have this narrative um, in the, the, the historical literature. And then you had, I think, uh, the first generation of feminist historians. I'm thinking here mostly of Anne Scott and her book, um, um, uh, From Pedestal to Power, uh, The Southern Lady Pedestal to Power, you know, who also talked about how strong these women were. So you had this desire of feminist historians to see the heroic and the strong women, which is understandable. So with, I think, probably um, Drew Faust's work, we had the first serious interrogation of, and then mostly these are elite women. Um, so we still have to get at um, middling and poor women, but she's the first one who says, these women were sold a bill of goods in the paternalist in the paternalism um, bargain that they would be taken care of and when war came and the men went off to war and they they were left with their parcel of children and and having to plow it all fell apart for them and some of them really never recovered is is this um I, I might be going off script here for a second but i'm really intrigued by this because after the war and during reconstruction and all that, and I don't mean to go so far ahead right now, but this is kind of an interesting point because we still hear about it, uh, especially with the lost cause narrative. Is this part of the rise of what would become later the United Daughters of the Confederacy, where you're having the women control that narrative of what women went through during the war? Is that where that comes from? Well, it actually starts during the war. Um, okay. So we have the, um, you know, the, the typical memorials to women. Um, in fact, a lot of the, the, the Confederate, um, the, the literature that was really um, the inchoate uh, lost cause ideology, they, they were starting to turn this idea that it was the women who, who held the country together and it was the failing of the men who, who didn't do their jobs, who didn't hold up their end of the bargain. So you actually see this being played out during the war. And then of course it get, gets fed um, into the memorial uh, efforts and, and then into organizations like the UDC by these Confederate descendants who, who take hold, take the reins of the narrative and don't allow for women like Sarah Neese or Sarah Garrett to, to have a place. And what I want, was trying to do in my book was to recover the lives of these women, not to, not to say that they were typical or that they were, um, you know, I don't want to make them victims, but to just say that there was a larger experience for women in, on the Confederate home front. And it's important to have all of these women included. Yeah, and John, I would add too, I mean, part of this just naturally happens. When you remember experiences in war and you're sharing your own experiences, rarely do you want to share your worst moments or what you might feel like were your worst moments, right? When we, you know, when you talk to students about, yes, it's Mary Chestnut's diary, but you have to realize it's been edited. And you think about if if they if people could just basically publish all of your tweets for the last 10 years, you might want to take a few things out too, right? So part of this just kind of naturally, there's almost this self-filtering. Mm -hmm. And part of the thing I was thinking about, Diane and Steph, too, is that, you know, when we look at the stories people share and the accounts that get shared, they usually are going to be the accounts of the elites who might have more of a buffer. 
where mm -hmm. I, and that's one of the amazing things about these governor collections is you know you can hear from Sarah Nice from 1864 who is mm -hmm. fuming about these guys who just came and seized her pony for the war effort she's not even convinced they're actually in the army and she's like what am i supposed to do i've got three kids to support and i can't even plow a field right. you know and, and it's and it's also you know diane you, you mentioned this great thing too about i think sometimes you know it's 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 all of us want in this kind of modern age wow look at what these women were were able to do right and we love telling the stories of abigail adams during the american revolution and she's actually running the farm more efficiently than john did but we forget sometimes that yeah but they didn't necessarily want to do that and that was not necessarily their goal and that and it's it's you know what's in place to support them is not much i mean one of the things we've been noticing on the team Lindsay Peterson pointed this out, um, is how quickly, I mean, I'm talking June of 1861, mothers are writing in asking for their sons to be recused from military service. He enlisted, he's not even 18, I'm a widow, you need to send him home. Mm -hmm. So this isn't kind of as war pressure builds, it's immediate. And the other thing is how quickly people are needing aid. Um, it's almost like there's, there's no buffer um, one of my grad students who studied kind of assistance for military families on the Mississippi home front, she noticed that in some counties in Mississippi, this, the police boards who provide that assistance during this time period, they're starting to provide aid by August of 1861. I mean, it's very, very quick that families are just, they're just becoming just destitute. Because again, I think you didn't have that buffer. And if we're only looking at some of the more elite records, you're, you're not running into it like you can when you get into the governor's records because everybody wrote to the governor. Right. It's, it's fascinating what's coming up. Yeah, yeah and I think that um, demographically it's important to understand that there probably what would be my guess is if you look at these women, they're probably either widows or they're very young Yep. mothers, right? So that makes sense that they would be in peril much earlier. Um, Bob Kenzer has this great um, older, but very, very, uh, you know, time, timeless study of Orange County, North Carolina, in which he talks about the high percentages of Virginia women who are actually um, widowed, and they're young, and the majority of the, 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 the soldiers and their wives have married in the 1850s. So when they go off to war, they have very little. They don't have a nest egg. They were just starting out. So when you have maybe a, a marriage that's only been a few years old, uh, maybe one child or two very, very small children, these are not children who can help the mother. They are not able to go out and plow into the fields like the older um, you know, women could do. And then, of course, the widows become um, uh, another class that's, that in my, in my book, I, I see that they suffer emotionally um, at, at very, very high rates. Hmm. Steph, we see a lot of these uh, women rating in, as we've been saying, to assert their rights, basically, and to say that, hey, this is a, something has been wronged, uh, you know, that I've been treated unfairly. I feel that I need to have compensation. Uh, and, and it seems like a lot of these women are from different strata economically. Uh, one of them, though, that really struck out to me was uh, uh, Sarah Garrett saying that, you know, I, I think it's 1864. She's uh, some of her, uh, some of the people who she has enslaved, she just lets them go and work as tradesmen. And the Mississippi apparently doesn't like that and and uh, wants to clap down on that. Uh, and then you see other women who are from uh, the yeoman class writing in and, and still doing as we've been saying, asserting their rights. Uh, what were some of the people, uh, some of these women who really struck out to you who were like, you know, they're not afraid to ask and seek what they need? 
Yeah. One of the people um, that I did background research for, for this podcast that poor Suzanne has had to listen to me talk about many times, because there's just something about her um, in one of the people that I'm most interested in looking in is Caroline Burns. Um, Caroline Burns is about a middle-aged woman. She actually enters the civil war as a widow. Um, her husband dies in the 1850s and she is a tavern owner in Starkville. And she actually in the 1860 census, um, Caroline was doing pretty decently. I couldn't find a slave schedule to see if she um, had any um, enslaved individuals, um, but she certainly had a high property and a high personal value um, in the census. And she was a tavern owner. And of course, I'm going up to, am I wrong, Susanna, 1864 is when she writes the governor or is it 1865? It's right after the war. Yeah, because it's it's a tax that basically gets passed on wartime earnings. Yeah. So she's upset that she's about to get taxed and she owns this tavern and she actually writes to the governor and she says something to the effect. She's like, I can't pay any of my bills, much less taxes. I have this tavern. I'm not making ends meet. I feel like I'm going to lose everything. Um, And she's been running this place by herself long before the war started. Um, So she is kind of an independent businesswoman who's been making things work. Um, All of her older children, it doesn't really look like anyone, but one of her daughters is helping her run this tavern. Um, And so she writes them and she says, I help. Like, I can't, I can't do anything. Please don't make me pay tax. Um, and we don't really, do we have a response from the governor on that one, Suzanne? We don't have a response yet that we've been able to see, but because sometimes there'll be a little notation at the bottom. Yeah, and but, I, there's not one on this. Right. But the thing that I've loved about this one is, you know, she makes it very clear that, by the way, I have paid my taxes yeah. <laughs> on time, in full, you know, that I'm a good businesswoman. It's been a, you know, it's a rough year kind of a thing. Yeah. But Suzanne, what she also says is, and this probably of all of the sample um, cases that you shared with me, she said she 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 bolsters her case by saying that she has been a you know a, a, she has paid her her dues in the past and fulfilled the responsibilities and duties of a good citizen. Yeah, you don't have women referring to themselves as citizens. Oh God! Right? Before the war, citizens were men. Diana. How did I miss that? That is fantastic. If you look at, like, Stephanie McCray talks about this, uh, and she says, you know, really, like, you know, they, they, because her argument is that the war gives these women a political identity and a political voice, they don't call themselves citizens or anything like that, but this woman does. So I think that's particularly telling about her, her expectation is that, you know, she has sacrificed and this government owes her. And um, she has done everything that has been asked of her as a good citizen. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that, I never even considered that. So that's, yeah. I, know, I know, this is a fantastic find. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to think about was unionist sentiment about among some of the women themselves. And um, we see this uh, in some points going through the the documents. Was it an early uh, thing or do we see women who are just sick of this whole endeavor and they're like, I wish this never would have happened. We need to face facts or or whatever else, because we do see it with some of the men, uh, you know, in the ranks. Do we see it with the women who are on the home front saying, a, I didn't like it in the first place, or B, uh, you know, just get this done and over with, and let's, you know, I, I want him to come home, or I want my compensation from right. the government. So far, and I, again, I need to kind of do that with the asterisks there, you know, we're, you know, we're about 2,000 docs in, but right. so far what we're seeing is more dissent, uh, frustration, than overt kind of political positioning of pro-union sentiment from from women in the documents it's it's a lot more about um the 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 challenges and the 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 tensions and the burdens that are being caused by the war effort Mm -hmm. so it's i would categorize it much more as dissent than overt unionism 
but you do, I mean, dissent can be a powerful thing though, right? Where you, where you think, where you see some of these documents where Confederate officers are writing in, they're like, you know, we're trying to round up these deserters in Madison County and nobody is helping us. They basically are right. siding with the deserters. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's not necessarily overt unionism that you're seeing in these cases as much as you, they're, they're clearly not seeing the purpose of the Confederate war effort though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there was an interesting point that we made about a year ago on a live stream. I was talking to Dr. Peter Carmichael about his latest book, and he talks about one of the deserters from a North Carolina unit after Gettysburg. And uh, he's basically receiving letters from home, you know, saying about how hard it is back home. But then his brother is also killed with him on Culp's Hill, and he has to take his brother's body home, and he never comes back. He's like, I'm just done, and everything else. He goes back to the army later on, is shot for desertion with like 12 other people at the time. And according to him, then in layman's terms, one of the newspapers in Richmond basically says, you know, the women are writing to these guys saying how hard it is back on the home front. We need to figure out how to stop this. And and basically blamed, quote unquote, blamed uh, some of the, the women for that. Uh, telling them how hard it was like in North Carolina or whatever other state there may be on that. And it really kind of stuck out to me because it shows the power of uh, the women back home when even the the media at the time sometimes slips and puts it into the newspaper that they're so the editorials are so they're mad about this whole thing. And they're putting in there that the, the they're basically, quote, blaming uh, the women on the home front for not being strong enough at times. And that's, that's a really striking thing to think when, when they have a, no political power at the polling place, but they have political pull at home. And, and Oh yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this is what Stephanie McCurry talks about in her book and Ann Rubin got into it. Amy Taylor has the, the idea that, you know, women wind up having enough power to demand county and state level support that, was promised, but wasn't actually being delivered. And yet they're they're gonna be able to create enough pressure to do this. Um, you can see Senator Wigfall saying the same thing about Texas families back home that, you know, the women need to cut it out. Like, you know, so, but you also see this in times of war period, right? I mean, this is why we have censorship, excuse me, with military males is that, you know, the male, let's not say too much. It's partly about security, but it's also partly about morale. Yeah. So, and it's just, you know, it's, um, you know, this is, this is why wars are not fun. Uh, you know, it, it very quickly goes from a moment of dramatic heights of almost this kind of patriotic fervor to the brutal reality of what war is and what war demands of people. And it very, yeah, you, you, you see this very quickly, I think, in almost kind of every war I've studied. Mm-hmm. Um, what's different, though, is I think the ability to let this project let us hear it from people who you don't traditionally hear from, right? It's not that, you know, we, we talked about this before. It's not that they've been silenced. It's just you can't get to all the voices. You can't hear all of them. And when you can start to make these readily available and you can easily search through them, you're really going to start to hear and be able to uncover things that we, we really hadn't understood before. Right. That's, that's, the, that's the power of the project, right? Is that, uh, you know, Steph, you're you're going through all these documents and you're looking at them and you're and they're being scanned and they're being transcribed and you could literally see the 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 strata of different citizenry at that time, if you will, uh, and and you're not just reading the Mary Chestnuts and you're not just reading these other uh, women's uh, diaries, which just happened to be published. These are these are letters like we would send today to an elected official like an email and and uh you're not going to write that the same way you're going to write a memoir exactly and i think one of the things that i'm most interested to see as this project progresses um we kind of talked last week about you know the introduction of secession and you know how people were kind of rallying around um around the early civil war and we've only digitized the first handful of these documents i mean handful is still a lot but out of 20 you know 20,000 we still have a way to go right. i'm going to be interested to see just because you know writing your governor wasn't necessarily commonplace but it wasn't it was something that you may do more 
more than once or twice in your entire life. And I'm interested to see, you know, if or whether or not we do have um, Mrs. J.O. Smith make an appearance again, who she was our lady from Vicksburg last week, um, mm -hmm. once again came into the Civil War, Civil War widowed. Um, and she was a nurse and asking to be shipped to Virginia because she wanted to serve as a nurse and had a bunch of other widowed nurse friends who wanted to join her and was asking how she could get there. And I think it's going to be kind of interesting to see as we go through these documents and we transcribe more. Do we hear from Mrs. Smith again? Um, you know, are they are they still kind of rallying behind this cause that they were in 1861? Is she going to pop back up, say, in Reconstruction, writing the governor, and is you know how's she feeling about the cause? You know, at that point. Yeah. So it's going to, I think that's something that we're going to be able to do with this collection that is invaluable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you've gone through 10%. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, it's a lot. And I don't think, I mean, have we, Suzanne, at this point found many duplicates of citizens, not necessarily military officials or political sure, officials? I mean, yeah. Mary, jo Mary Jones. Mary Jones. Yeah, Mary Jones. And I love that in the second, you know, she's just getting increasingly frustrated. You know, I, I try to get assistance as a military widow in Natchez, and they keep telling me that because I'm, I came down from Yazoo City, I've got to go there. But you told me to go to Jackson. I went to Jackson. You know, it's 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 just this. Oh my gosh! Will somebody help this poor woman? Mm -hmm. Her second letter, though, it's it ends with this. I, I was thinking about um, a lot of what you were talking about in your book, Diane. It ends with this very. Um, she's very much part of this patriarchy, right? Where she's seeing the governor, she's positioning him almost like this father figure who needs to protect her. Mm -hmm. um, Sarah Hogue, one of our grad students was the first one to kind of note that as, as we were working with that document, that she's, it's almost like she's, she's frustrated and she's being forceful and then she's kind of pulling back on it in part because maybe she does not want the responsibilities that are on her, but also because this is how she operates. This is how mm -hmm. her world works. Mm -hmm. The men are supposed to protect her and, you know, her father is a judge in Alabama. I mean, she looks like she was potentially well off. Her husband, um, Steph, didn't you find he was an overseer, if I remember right? Yeah, he was an overseer. Mm -hmm. uh, and in Natchez, and, you know, they don't have their property and real estate values, but they do have um, all the neighbors around them were very affluent people. And so you would think, you know, she had some connections, but she does not seem to. And so she falls back on this needing to be protected and basically calling on the governor to protect her. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that one of the um, one of the themes that jumps out at me is that these women have have an expectation that the Confederacy owes them. Um, they say. Uh, in fact, it was Mary Jones who talks about her husband who had sacrificed himself. Uh, and, and, and it's very pointed. They did not tell my dear husband that I should beg from door to door when he went to fight for his country. No, he sacrificed everything he had. So she is saying, you owe me. My husband gave you his life. Yeah. And, and now you have to take care of me. And one of the questions I had was, I wondered whether these women um, actually drove the states to develop policies of social welfare or whether they were in place. I couldn't, I couldn't divine that from the letters, but I wondered if they were actually the, the, the driving force behind some of these relief efforts. I think you can definitely say that. Um, I, I can't speak for, you know, every Southern state, but I mean, if you look at Mississippi and how aid is provided at the time, it was the county level matter. It was handled by the local police boards and they basically kind of would visit your house and see what your condition was and decide if you needed help. By the way, for folks listening, if you ever want to see those records, Family Search has a lot of those. They've all been digitized. They're not keyword searchable. Yet. Um, so you got to go in by county and then just, you know, keep clicking as you leaf your way through it. But, you know, it's it's those boards. And then all of a sudden, you know, this is going to be something that has to be provided at the state level. I mean, it's just too much to handle at the county level. Right. And we've seen scholars talk about and then, you know, for the north, this very much becomes part of a federal process mm -hmm. of, you know, providing care. Um, and absolutely. 
I think you can definitely credit women as being this kind of driving force in a very empathetic cause mm -hmm. um, because it is it's, it's as powerful today as it was then of, you know, if you're going to ask people to go and make these sacrifices, mm -hmm. uh, there's certain responsibilities that, you know, the state and people have to them. And so one of the questions I think that uh, more documents later on in your period uh, will show or not is the, the extent to which this politicization of women, this, this new relationship that they have with the state um, has longevity. How does that translate into the post-war years? Do they all fall back and in its business as usual or is it transformed into some kind of other kind of agency? Is it in fact, I mean, part of the lost cause, the, the UDC, is that how they channel their advocacy? Right. I think some of it's what you talk about too, Diane, where it's, it's, they can't fall back because so many of the men either don't come home or they come home, but with injuries that prevent them from, you know, providing as they had before the war. Mm -hmm. And so whether women want to maintain this kind of engaged role, at least if not in politics, at least economically, it's whether or not they want to do it, they have to do it. And they're having to kind of restructure families, you know, kind of combine, you know, sisters and children living together. You know, they're there. But that's it's one of the things that I'm the most interested in these documents is this whole thing about, well, and then the war ends, the men come home and the women go back into the household. I'm like, mm -hmm. that just doesn't happen when you have 750,000 casualties, you know, mm -hmm. or deaths. And then you have more um, from wounded and missing. So, you know, I think what we're going to find is a lot of Caroline Burns. Um, oh, Steph, I'm trying to remember the woman in Vicksburg. You know, she's she's basically selling cakes and pies. You know, she's like, look, I've long since sold off all my jewelry. Yeah. I, you know, and you, and it, again, it's one of the tax complaints. She's like, you know, you're, you're, my tax is higher than my entire store is worth. And, you know, and she has people documenting this for her and all that. But again, I don't I don't know that she wanted to remain um, engaged as a breadwinner, but she she has to. She has no other choice. Mm -hmm. I was wondering about that, too, with the with the devastating loss of life. And you said seven hundred fifty thousand deaths. That's not including people who were maimed or anything like that yeah. coming coming home. And uh, I, I immediately went to the World War Two era because it's like you hear about women in the workforce and then mm -hmm. they, they move uh, supposedly back to home and, and become home builders and all this stuff. And I, it seems like you can't really do that when a whole town is basically takes 80% casualties in the war, as far as the male population is concerned there, you're not holding that job for someone to come home to. Now you have to take that job or that, that position on the farm or whatever it may be. Plus they, they lose their, uh, enslaved population they they're, they're no longer slave they're freed peoples now so someone has to go out and work in that way too so not only do you have the loss of the white male population you have the loss of of that as well and so the economy needs to be re rebuilt and hence well this is reconstruction 101 but uh you know kind of like there's no real way to hold a place for the man to come back to and and say okay here's your old job or here's whatever because they're they're either dead, maimed, or or something else. Right, and if you think too about kind of the way women's the world in, the, in which they live has totally changed. I mean, if you think about how important marriage is, right, and the protections—not to mention the burdens—but the protections that kind of come with marriage in the society when you have such a devastating loss of the male population, right? I mean, I was just talking with our British historian this week who was talking about what were called surplus women. Um, after the first and second world wars, because you know there's there's all these women at home and these men and the women are not marrying. They're not they're not entering the life that they were raised to enter, um, and that their society is really kind of structured around. And so it's it's interesting when you think about how many challenges they're going to have to navigate in this this totally upended world. And then one of the the other things that I'm really hoping we're going to be able to investigate is now how does this play out for African American women. Um, there are very few, you know, free blacks in Mississippi um, before and during the Civil War. The vast majority of the African-American population is enslaved. And, you know, how how is this transition going to happen for freed women? 
Um, and and kind of what? How are they going to be able to navigate this? And and again, because their world, you know, is is just as upended and even more with all of these, you know, jubilee-like opportunities, and yet a heck of a lot of burdens. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't there be a, a trust divide there, post-war, where newly newly freed peoples? Or like, I don't know if I can trust this system just yet. So I'm not writing to the governor. I'm not writing to the government of the state I, or they may just leave and that may leave a hole in the research. Or it depends on who's governor. If it's a if it's a union general like Edelbert yeah. Ames, yeah. they might write him, right? right. Um, you know, the union officer. This is the son-in-law of, you know, Benjamin Butler. Right. So maybe they'll write him. Um, you know, Diane, you had commented earlier that, you know, there we can also piece together records from the Southern Claims Commission, um, Freedmen Bureau records, Freedmen Bank records. You know, there's there's ways to get at this. And so my, my dream long term is to be able to connect governor's projects like ours, like the one that's being built in Alabama right now in Kentucky, mm -hmm. but also to connect those with like the Smithsonian's efforts to transcribe the Freedmen's Bureau projects. So, you know, could we, you know, do searches for the people in our collection and see what the Freedmen's Bureau records are pulling up as well? Mm -hmm. Hey, we're trying that with subject tagging. So yep. that's something we might be able to do soon. Yeah. One of the things that we do at CWRGM is not only do we transcribe everything, but we um, subject tag everything with um, Library of Congress subject tagging protocols. So at least we are using a lot of the same subject tags that other other projects are doing. And so hopefully one day we'll be able to cross-reference with other major projects. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, that's what really interests me as well. Uh, the subject tagging is huge with digitization uh, because it streamlines everything mm -hmm. and you can get right to the heart of the matter very quickly. It's accessible. Everyone wants to have quick accessibility yep. right now because we're used to getting it on the phone and, yep. and, and thumbing through it literally and finding what we need. So digital history uh, and digital humanities in general has really revolutionized this process, which I'm so glad that uh, many people are going to be able to help out with the project. And I hope many people here in the chat and and, and listening on the podcast later on uh, go to the website because they're they're going to need help with all these these documents with transcribing <laughs> and all that. And uh, as I as I said last week, I always keep my reading glasses handy because some of these letters wow i mean it's just it's just crazy but being able to see the primary source for the first time and being able to give it light and uh have the ability to put it on the, the world stage literally on the website that's a huge endeavor not only in time but it's a huge endeavor for legacy of the state mm -hmm. and, and these people of the state uh what has this experience been like to put these women on the world stage for the first time, because these women have maybe never been heard before, or maybe only a couple because someone found them in an archive. This is a totally different ballgame now with digital humanities. How has that been personally for, for you in this project? And I'll let anyone take this because you all have worked with primary sources. You all have worked with digital resources. And I'm the only man on the panel tonight, so I'm going to sit back and listen. <laughs> Good job. I, yeah, I would say, John, I mean, one of the things with the subject tagging that really drove that effort was to help find people who aren't going to easily be found, right? So these are usually, are usually kind of all your um, kind of, they're, they're going to be in the lower economic classes, they're going to be you know marginalized for one re reason or another. And so we started creating these tags that would help you find, you know, military families, would help you find widows um, that are going to collect the documents tied to lunatic asylums. Mm -hmm. um, it also offers kind of suggested phrasing so that when students are using the, these terminologies and you see 19th century words that, you know, are just not acceptable, they're immediately going to have this pop-up cue. This is the acceptable word. And if you click on this, you can find all sorts of additional documents connected to this at the same time. So, I mean, it, it became, I mean, my first book was on Irish Catholics in the Union Army and understanding kind of the motivations behind their military service. And that, that's another group that it's really hard to find records that aren't military records or letter collections from soldiers. When I was trying to get into, yeah, but what happens to their families? Again, 
this is just something I tend to work in, you know, what happens to the family as a result of these, these heroic or these sacrificing or these dramatic stories that we are drawn toward, you know, you don't want to forget the, the cost that, that is involved in that. And part of it, you know, comes from, you know, kind of coming from a military family background, but also just wanting to find these, these experiences that you can't find. And so, yeah, it's, it, it feels incredibly good to be able to be part of something that's not only going to get this stuff up online, but get it online in a really organized way so that people can actually make sense of it mm -hmm. and find what they need to find. Like if you're interested in what happens to the criminal justice system during the war, like who's, who is getting charged? What happens during reconstruction? Like who's getting charged for what? And how do the charges differ based on race, based on gender, based on class? We're going to be able to help people kind of quickly sort through that. So yeah, it feels really good. And and I would say I would make two points and one of them is that for me I teach undergraduates in a research seminar and having um digital sources available to them is just so critical. They would never be able to do any primary research in Mississippi, right? right? But now I'm going to be able to point them when I teach my civil war uh, seminar for them that they're going to be able to go to these records and learn a little bit about Mississippi and, and, and its history. The second thing I would say is that for me, I, I have a penchant for doing social history. I, I really enjoy uncovering the lives of men and women who aren't elites, who don't hold office, who don't author memoirs. And so this is a wonderful uh, access point to, to read about Mary Jones and uh, Sarah Neese. Mm -hmm. um, these are women who, this, is, this may be the only point in, in the uh, historical record, the official record, where they've left uh, a thumbprint. So, mm -hmm. so I think for me, that's the real, one of the great aspects of this project and others like it is that we can see uh, what it's like among the middling folk um, and we learn about what their struggles are like and how those differ from those of the elites. Hmm. Hmm. Steph, how about you? Oh, I'm just saying, especially with my um, students, because right now, like I told you last week, I'm teaching a humanities 42502 class um, that have strictly been working with CWRGM documents. And as a professor, it's actually been a lot of fun um, to watch them kind of discover slash rediscover the Civil War era in Mississippi because of a lot of the letters that they've been working with so far, um, the few that they've come into contact with have already complicated their notions of what the Civil War meant um, in the state, what they were taught in high school, and in the majority of the students that I have in my class were born and raised in Mississippi. So this has been a fantastic opportunity for them to see, you know, as, you know, via social history from, you know, people's own mouths, from women's own mouths, what their experiences are during the war and how they felt when secession happened. And so, you know, beyond a digital perspective for, as an educational, from an educational perspective, it's been fascinating to see the light bulb go off and realize, you know, sometimes grand narratives are a little too grand. Um, and this is what real life was actually like. And the students are already responding to it. And it's been phenomenal. And Steph, I mean, with your work with loyalists during the American Revolution, you know, again, these are the, these are the kind of the portions of the population that as people are making the decisions of what to preserve, these are usually the records that do not get preserved. It's either a story that people don't maybe want remembered or they just view it as it's just not important. And so the crazy thing with these governor's records is that, you know, Mississippi, you know, mandated for the state archive to really preserve these. It was actually kind of part of a lost cause effort. Um, you know, these, this, this critically important story of the Confederacy and you know, in the process, you know, they're, they're actually helping us dismantle the lost cause. Um, <laughs> Irony lives. Yeah. Especially the women's letters. Yeah, especially the women's letters. Yeah, but it's also yeah. letting you hear from people who are a lot more maybe like you um, than what we traditionally hear from. Because it's it's elites who preserve their records or their others value their, their stories. Um, but, you know, I've often said it's, 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 it's so the vast, the, the much more common experiences are going to be from the middle and the lower classes. Mm -hmm. um, so this is really going to let you hear um, from those experiences. Yeah. And someone like me, who's a 
full-time digital historian in a different vein, you know, doing it via social media, doing it via live streams and other places. This opens so many doors for people like me who are trying to get the information quickly to disseminate it out to a large audience in a quick manner who are seeking it very easily and want it uh, put in layman's terms, basically, if, if I can use that term, uh, because, you know, it's reaching a very diverse audience. And so when you have all this stuff digitized, it's like you could showcase the digitized record and then be like, what's this backstory behind this? And and why, who's the audience that this letter is supposed to be going to? Because when you're reading a memoir, it's for a certain audience. When you're reading for, well, this letter, it's for a different audience. Yeah. And how, how does that coincide? It's almost like running a classroom, you know, on, on social media in that way where you allow people to really think and get outside their comfort level. And uh, I can't imagine, you know, when, when, when you're in the classroom, like Steph just said, with someone who's learned this time period a certain way, and then all of a sudden you put all these documents in front of them and you're like, well, hold it. This is what people like you and I were saying, where they're serving in the military, there are women on the home front or whoever may be someone who was uh, a freedman after the war it has to be just jaw dropping for a new generation of historians because this is this project is going to impact and ours like it are going to impact so many other generations to come oh absolutely i mean one of my dreams is that you know you can take a county in mississippi and okay here's the confederate monument and here's what it says on the confederate monument now look at all these letters that came in from that county during the war and you know if you do it you know for example where we are um where i am in, in forest county there's this number one, there was no Forest County during the war, but it's, it's okay. It's basically people of the region. Um, you know, it's, it's this, it's, this, it's a classic monument, the, the noble sacrifice, basically everybody doing what they needed to do for the, for the cause that completely ignores the fact of, you know, Jones County right next door, actually portions of it, you know, of, of not only dissent, but kind of armed internal revolution of, you know, these, like these documents from the women who, you know, we're, we're not just doing the noble sacrifice. There is a lot of anger and a lot of demands. And so mm -hmm. I would love to see school groups, whether it's, you know, sec secondary students or college and university students, public, you know, community groups, get in there and get into these county level records and kind of look at how the war gets publicly remembered and then try and unravel, okay, what happened? Like, how did we, how did that memory get so convoluted along the way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, couldn't you imagine putting these primary sources next to the speeches that were given at the monument mm -hmm. dedication yeah. and being like, spot the differences, yeah. <laughs> you know, it'd be, it'd be really interesting to, yeah. to see that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's fantastic. I really appreciated the story of the bonnet brigade women because it's like, they want equal pay for equal work. And it's like, that's fantastic. You know, yeah, the Nightingale we're thinking about this. Let's do it. You know, I know. I think we're going to have to add the Nightingale regiment to the sample documents. Yeah, Nightingale regiment. Yeah. 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 I, I really, I really enjoyed that. That's fantastic. Uh, any last words about uh, this particular part of the project at, at all? And I'll, and I'll go around one more time because this is fascinating to me uh, because I've mainly studied the the men at the front and and heard of the home front stuff and i've recently learned within the last five to ten years uh about how uh women at home could change the course of uh mm -hmm. desertion rates and stuff like that and i've been just fascinated by it and now thinking about how we're going to go into reconstruction with it mm -hmm. is even more fascinating to me because uh as we've said in previous live streams you know uh, it's been tough to get the reconstruction stuff even out there into the traditional sphere of the history world, uh, especially when it comes to public schools. Uh, so this would be a brand new thing for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. Is there something that, uh, you know, really stands out for the reconstruction era, perhaps, where you're thinking about maybe claims of damage from the war or something like that, where the women are the ones writing in and saying, mm -hmm. I have the power now to get this done and I, I need this done. Right. So um, we're definitely seeing the so far. And again, remember, this is we're just kind of picking out some sample documents of the reconstruction period. But what we are seeing are, are those kind of demands that, you know, that I can't pay this tax. You've got to be kidding me. Um, the other thing that I've been noticing in some of the post-war documents is, is just the number of widows being referenced. Um, you know, the, the shooting took place near the widow Wilson's house. The this took place near widow so-and-so's house. 
and I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, again, this sense of, you know, just how, how revolutionized these women's lives have been by the deaths of so many of these men. Um, but I don't know. I, I'd have, we're going to have to dig in to see, well, I don't know. He might have actually died a year or two, you know, earlier. I think the, the, the parts where the documents are helping us challenge the historiography and maybe forward what we, what we think we know is, again, the, the very early demand for assistance um, and the very almost immediate demand for men to be sent home. Um, you know, just, you know, basically it, it's a lot of mothers, a lot of widowed mothers with sons that, you know, he, I told him not to enlist. He went ahead and did it anyway. You need to send him home kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are, those are a couple of the spots where I'm going to be curious, you know, to, to, to learn more. Um, and the last thing I would just add is, you know, as a, as a military historian who absolutely spends a lot of time on battlefields where you're writing about them or walking them with folks. One of the important things to remember when you study soldiers at war is how that we are looking at them on the battlefield, but they are looking home. Um, when you look at their letters, they're they're interested in getting home. They're interested in what's happening at home. You know, it's it's, you know, 90 percent boredom and frustration that they can't get home. And so if you don't study the home front when you're studying war, you're missing about 90 percent of that story. Um, and it's and it's and it's, I would certainly argue it's over half of the story, and it's an important one to understand. Yeah. Um, I would I would suggest that there's probably two areas where you're going to find some good documentation um, for in the post-war post-war period is one is nationalism, and I know you have the Anne Rubin coming up in a couple of weeks, but that was the other thing that was running through. Uh, through through these documents was okay. Now that we know that that these women are challenging the Confederacy, what is that you know what does that say about their commitment to nation? Mm -hmm. um, there there's a very healthy debate about this. So I think that you'll get more evidence that will help us answer questions about the level of their commitment to to, to their nation. But also I think you're going to find more uh, evidence of conflict uh, with African Americans. So whether it's ending, so um, I had done some work with the, the Kentucky Governor's Project, yeah. and there were so many court cases mm -hmm. that were um, held either during the war or right after the war. And then after the war, there's uh, letter writing campaigns, there's petitions to uh, lessen a penalty or a fine or to get somebody out of jail. And they mm -hmm. use the, the, the circumstances of war uh, and loyalty and you know, traitors to try to leverage that. So I think that you're probably going to find an awful lot of, of um, wrangling and conflict, but also uh, contests over African-Americans and labor and um, there's going to be violence and how is that prosecuted? Yeah, and we're going to be talking about some of that next week as we look at kind of the process of emancipation and the violence in that early post-war period. One of the documents we'll look at next week has to do with the shooting of an African-American man by the son of um, the Freedman's uh, previous owner. And, you know, this this kind of struggle for power on the same land where he, he is now working as a laborer, where he had been enslaved. And, you know, he's he, the, the, the murder and what we, we've been trying to dig in is to find out what happened to the son. Did he get actually did he get prosecuted for this? Yeah. Um, what was the penalty? And those those are going to be those cases, kind of like that Diane's talking about, that we can dig into. Awesome. I just put up the link in the chat for everyone who is is here with us uh, as we're wrapping up to get involved with the project. And Susanna, do you want to uh, give them just a short uh, burst of what they can do to help this project out? I, I place the website into both the chats on Facebook and YouTube. Awesome. Thanks, John. Yeah, basically, if you want to get involved, you go to CWRGM.org and you click on Get Involved. And there's a quick little 13-minute training video on, you know, transcriptions and the weird things of 19th century writing, like the double S that looks like an FS and, you know, these, these types of things to help you out. And then, you know, it just takes you to what's called From the Page, which is an online transcription service where you can find all of our documents and you can help transcribe. We are running a little bit low on documents right now because of COVID restrictions at the state archives. 
kept them from being able to send us as many documents as they had planned. And I want to make it very clear to everybody that our colleagues at the state archives have been working like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is COVID. When you can't even let people in the building, it, mm-hmm. it's going to create a slowdown. But we're supposed to be getting another huge batch in June. So if you want to go and help us now, awesome. If you go and there aren't a lot of documents that you want to work on, but you want to you know, come, come back to us in June, come back in June. We are going to need the help. We, I have uh, one question from the audience. Do you need to be in Mississippi to help? No. No. From anywhere in the world. As help. long as you have internet access, you can access the records. And please, I mean, I I think the thing that is just so fun about volunteers getting involved is, you know, we have a volunteer transcriber in Wales. You know, we have, we have, we, we just have people from all over who are just interested in this. And you don't have to have a history background, y'all. I mean, y- all you have to do is basically be able to read cursive. Um, and John's right. It's it's not always beautiful cursive when they talk about, you know, in the old days, they taught yeah. handwriting. I'm like, yeah, but yeah. not is beautiful. Or it bleeds through from the other side, and then the other side's yeah. going a different direction. Yep. Oh, no. Yep. Or they yeah. run out of paper, and they start writing this way. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have mm-hmm. a lot of Tylenol on hand for those headaches. That's, that's exactly. But it's, it's definitely worth it. I would <laughs> never say that to talk you out of it. No. It is no. worth it. It is totally worth it. And remember, as a volunteer, you get to move on to the next document if you don't like the one you picked. It's, right. it's the student researchers who have to stay and you know keep working on the hard documents. So that's you can always right. pick a different one. That's right. And hey, any students out there want to get involved, that can go on your resume. That's right. Volunteer yep. work. So Absolutely. bump up that resume. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you all for being on here. Diane, thank you for coming on and My pleasure. time with us. It's been wonderful. Susanna, thank you for another wonderful week here uh, on, on the live stream. Uh, Stephanie has uh, fallen by the wayside. Uh, her, her battery <laughs> died on the laptop, but I want to thank her as well. Uh, she's probably going to see that later and and understand that she's been thanked yeah but and Diane, uh, i just want to thank you too the yeah. you know we run we wanted you on this episode for exactly the insights that you brought tonight so i appreciate it well yeah. thank you for having it's an honor to have you think of me yes. thank you and thank you john fun night thank, thank you, you. thank you thank you everyone uh on the panel mm-hmm. and thank you everyone in on facebook and on youtube it's been a pleasure for me to do this panel uh because of being the only male on the panel last year i saw a live stream where there were four males and one female talking about women's history so this is great let's keep flipping the script ladies and gentlemen and doing it right uh but but thank you all for tuning in i hope you had a wonderful evening please be safe out there we're going to be back on next week same time same channels Mm kind of like batman 